Hi, I'm Gillian. And I'm Sophie. And you're listening to Breaking Through Careers, Investment Management Edition with Future Asset, where we demystify the industry that is investment management. Each episode, we explore a new asset class or role to find out what our guest does on a day-to-day basis and what they did in order to get there. We'll also be joined by a keen school student each episode to help ask the questions you want to know the answers to. Do you need to study economics at a certain university to get into a What's the difference between active and passive investment? Leverage loans, quant funds, indices, can you please I thought you needed to be posh to work in investment. On a scale of 1 to 10, how boring would you say you are? Am I going to need to get a pinstripe suit? Welcome to part two of the US Equity Investor. In part one, Kirsty told us how a ballet show led to the investment management industry, explained what the stock market is, and gave us her opinion on whether or not you need to go to university to become an equity investor, and if so, what degree you should pick. Let's get to it. What do you like about your job, Kirsty? Oh, what do I not like about my job? <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> I think it's that it's very varied. I can't imagine getting bored in what I do. And I've been doing my job for, I was saying I'm in my ninth year now, and I'm still not bored with researching companies. And I think that variety that it brings is really, really, really interesting to me. There's also a couple of other things. So the second thing is we as a team invest in what we would call transformational growth. So we're looking for companies that can really potentially change the world. And it just means that you get to research things that are right at the cutting edge, like whether it be new types of medicines or new types of like electric versus combustible cars and you start researching them at such an early stage you just learn so much about so many things that you probably in life wouldn't cover I think the other thing for me is I love jigsaws (laughs) jigsaw puzzles and I think that this job is quite like a sort of metaphorical jigsaw it's collecting information and bringing in lots of different pieces of information and making up a kind of big jigsaw in your head but it's also a jigsaw that's kind of never ending you never have a completed picture it's always changing and that part really really appeals to me this idea that it's slightly investigational slightly creative I think it just brings in a lot of parts of my personality that I really like the analytical side and that's something that I really enjoy. But I like that kind of creative side. We do a lot of thinking about how a company could be in five to 10 years if they're successful. And that's just amazing to think about that. You're not thinking about how might things go wrong. You're thinking about how how might things go right? And how could this company change the world? And what would happen if we all drove electric cars? Or what would happen if all cars were electric, but they drove themselves? That's amazing to be able to spend your day doing that. That's a luxury. That's why I would say I really enjoy my job. It sounds amazing, but I also now really get why that would be your superhero choice to be able to see into the future. Yeah. I think I might end up in prison, though, if that was the case, because I'm pretty sure that that's uh, called it. I'm pretty sure that that would be illegal. (laughs) It would make me very good at my job, but no. Um. So now for the other side of the coin, what do you dislike about your job? I think one of the hardest things is probably, and that's why I talk about the the superpower being able to see the future, is the uncertainty factor. And I think I've gained more comfort in that over time. I think when you first start out, I think you come from university where you are praised for being right. You know, you get higher marks when you're right and all that kind of thing. And and then you, you get thrust into a world where you don't know if you're right. Like, I could say let's buy a stock and it might for one year not go up. It might not rise in price. It might mean that our clients haven't made any money in it. Does that mean I'm wrong? 
if I'm on a five-year investment horizon and actually in five years we make money, does that mean I was right? The reasons that the stock goes up that I believe could happen, it might not go up for those reasons, but it still goes up. So does that mean I was right or does that mean I was wrong? So you kind of just have to go with the flow a little bit. And I think in the last few years, maybe since I've had kids, it's really helped. I've embraced that uncertainty. But I think that as humans, we very naturally want to hold on to things that we can understand. And we we want to understand things perfectly and know that we're, am I doing this correctly? And the feedback loops in investment are just so long. And so all I can say is, well, for my clients, my fund has a good track record of returns. That's really fabulous. But I think that there's a constant questioning of, well, can I continue to deliver that? And you find ways of coping with that. But that's probably maybe not the thing I enjoy the least, but the thing I find the hardest about my job is that continuous uncertainty and having to embrace that uncertainty. I guess knowing a bit more about what goes into the job and the good and the bad, it'd be great if you could tell us a bit more about what the key skills are to be a good equity investor. I'm not sure there's a tick list. I think some degree of analytical skill is required, but I think that has to be combined with creativity. Because I think if you think about what I said earlier about what active investing is, it's about trying to beat a benchmark. And I think you're only going to beat that benchmark if you think differently. Because if you all analyze companies in exactly the same way, you're all going to arrive at the same conclusion, which means ultimately you're not going to beat the benchmark because the benchmark is going to perform in the same way that you do. So I think you have to have the analytical skill and that's what you learn on the job. And that's why it's okay that you have a English literature degree or a music degree or anything like that, because you can build those skills on the job. I think the harder thing to teach people is that creativity, is that, well, what could this company be like in however many years and allowing your imagination a little bit to run riot. I think that's the harder skill to teach people. So I think some degree of creativity or a willingness to embrace that creativity, having the basics of the analysis down. And then I think that genuine curiosity the fact is, like I said before, I believe it's a luxury that you can sort of pursue things that you're interested in. Go rooting around. I've been rooting around in some really random places. I've turned up at industry-specific conferences where I'm the only investor there. And I'm so far out of my depth, it's actually unbelievable. But I get to listen to experts talk about things. So I think that natural curiosity of, well, I just want to learn more. I'm just interested to learn more. I need to understand. I think that's a really key skill to be able to have. And I think that some people just, that's not who they are. They're not interested in doing all the ground research. And if that's not who you are, then I'm not sure that maybe this is the job for you. But if that is who you are, if you're just desperate to be like, oh, how does that work? Or why does that happen? Then it's a great job for you to be in because the parts of the job, they line up really well with your personality and you'll actually just enjoy what you do. Absolutely. Honestly, I think my favorite thing about the job is the fact that you literally get paid to learn cool stuff about the world for a living. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. How is that the case? Why are we getting paid for this? It's great. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. What would you say your typical working hours are? Core hours probably, I would probably have arrived in the office about 8.30 and then left at about 5. Have a bit of a lunch break. I used to go out for a walk. Bailey Gifford's office is in the centre of Edinburgh, so I used to go out for a walk at lunchtime. Wouldn't necessarily take an hour off. I mean, if you wanted to take an hour off, that's fine. There's not really much clock watching that goes on in the company that I work for. I'm not sure about other companies. I've never worked anywhere else, so can't really make a comment about that. 
Do you have any friends or anything? Because, you know, you watch shows on TV and you hear all these stories about these crazy hours that people in finance work. So it's obviously not your experience. Any thoughts maybe a bit about more widely? Yeah. Oh, I hope I have friends. <laughs> I think I have friends. Maybe they disagree. I don't know. I have hobbies outside of work. I also have a family. So, and I'm very keen that I would rather go home and then maybe on some days, do I put some work in in the evenings? Yeah, I do. It's not a requirement. Nobody's asking me to. I just do because I'm interested or because I want to. But there are certainly lots of people who are like, no, the end of my day is at this time and, and that's it. I still do ballet. I certainly don't spend my weekends working. I'm much more likely to be found at a play park than I am sitting at my PC on a weekend. So I do think that there are there probably are firms where there is more a culture of that. I think they're probably on the way out now. I think that's probably more of a historical representation rather than what it is in reality. I've seen that on like Wolf of Wall Street or whatever. You know, you watch a movie and you're like, oh, wow, okay. And then yet I've spoken to many people in Edinburgh who work for investment firms and nobody seems to be working at nine o'clock at night, let alone 12 o'clock at night. So, yeah. Before you started your role, is there anything that you wish that you had known? No, I think I probably just, I think it was of benefit that I sort of stumbled into it. I think I didn't have too many expectations of what it was like. I think it probably would be worth realising that it's definitely not like the sort of thing that you see portrayed on TV or in the movies. (laughs) And I think if you think that that's a reason not to apply, I would encourage you to realise that that's not what it's like. Well, it's not been my experience. So I definitely wouldn't go, oh, I don't think that's the culture for me. I'm not going to try that. Because actually, when you actually go into a lot of these firms, they're not like that at all. So I think that uh, it probably was a benefit to me that I hadn't watched Wolf of Wall Street before I applied for an investment role, because I probably would have been like, oh my God, I don't want to work somewhere like that. That's not really for me. But that's just not been my experience of what it's been like. I think, Kirsty, that takes us perfectly on to the next section of what we're going to be discussing, which is all about myth busting. So in the next section, we are trying to tackle some of the stereotypes that are associated with our industry by using some challenging and I guess some controversial statements. We need you to answer if you think it's myth or fact, but feel free to talk around the subject to just help us understand why people might have taken on these stereotypes. And I think the Wolf of Wall Street might be a really key one of how that's come to be. So at first up, finance jobs, including investment management ones, are highly mathematical and you would need to be absolutely amazing at maths in school to work in the industry. Myth or fact? Definitely myth. There are, I'm sure there are specific roles in finance where if you are a wizard maths, then they will be fantastic for you. But I think if you struggle or don't want to spend any time thinking about anything, even like a percentage, then maybe it's not the job for you because you do need to do some basic maths. But I would say maths is maybe five to 10% of the research that I do. Yeah, you look at company accounts, but actually a lot of it's not even to do with... If you don't like adding and subtracting, it's probably not the job for you. Adding, subtracting and percentages. Yeah, if if you're not into that, then don't go into this job. But if you are happy with those kind of things, then I think you'd be absolutely fine doing this. You will meet people, though, who are absolutely phenomenal at that kind of analysis. And they will create the most amazing model, valuation models of their companies that they look at and everything like that. But that's okay. That can be their skill set. That can be their competitive advantage. That can be where they generate their insight. That's not how I believe that I will generate my insight. And I I think, like I said, in order to do this job, and if you want to do active investing and you want to beat that benchmark, it's okay to do things differently. That's the whole point. You need to do things differently so you arrive at a different point of view. 
getting a job in finance, particularly investment managers, about who you know, not what you know. Myth or fact? Myth. I didn't know anyone. (laughs) Again, I think historically probably true. I think maybe 30 years ago, that was probably the case. And then probably you saw that kind of fizzle out since then. But yeah, I mean, everybody that I know that works at the company that I work at, absolutely none of them got that job through anything but their own merit. And Sophie, would you like to weigh in as someone who works in early careers, anything about the robustness of the process or something like that? Definitely. I mean, I have spent a lot of the last few years working on doing exactly that, trying to get interns and grads to come into the industry. And I really think that we do everything we can to try and make things robust so that nepotism is something that is in the past and doesn't, you know, stop people coming into the industry now. Think something for me and the processes I've worked on, it's all about trying to create ways that people can succeed and really bring forward their best self. So it's not about having, you know, lots of hoops to jump through just to trick people or ask them questions to trip them up. It's about trying to create lots of different ways to find out what skills and what experiences people have and how they can come in and fit into your organization, into roles and really be successful within them. So I would definitely agree that you can come in and even from my own perspective I also joined knowing absolutely no one and not really known much of the industry because I think that, you know, a lot now we are looking more at the potential that people have rather than just necessarily what qualifications they've got or who they might have known. So the next question is something you've already touched on, but jobs and investment management help you understand the world, myth or fact? I think that's definitely a fact. I think, well, it helps you understand some things about the world better. And we're certainly not going to answer all your questions. No job can. And you're always going to be learning. But I think it brings you a broader perspective on the world. And you have to have opinions and thoughts on the world, whether that be in like US equities. You know, I think the US market's an extremely innovative market, extremely exciting market. And you have to have thoughts on maybe where do you believe the future of energy is? Is the future in oil or is it in solar or wind or are we going to all be driving electric cars, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, yeah, you definitely helps you understand the world, but better. But I wouldn't say it's going to help you understand the world. I think it's far too complicated a beast to be able to do that. <laughs> this next one's something I've definitely come across when speaking to young women at career fairs. So you need to be an aggressive, dominant female to succeed in investments. Is that a myth or a fact, Kirsty? Oh, it's absolutely true. Yeah, no. No, (laughs) no, absolute myth. I think I'd add to that that you don't need to be an alpha male to work in investment either or finance in general. And I think what you'll find is that that kind of behavior is far less prominent than you'd even expect. I would say that, you know, it's still a male dominated industry. And that's not to say that females shouldn't apply. In fact, females should be applying. But I work on a team of eight people and there are two females and six males. And that's fine. We're progressing and we're moving towards more females, but it is a much more male-dominated industry. But I don't think that you have to be an alpha female in the slightest. I think a lot more is achieved when everybody and females, males, everybody supports each other and tries to progress each other and push each other on. Ultimately, it's about how we can do the best for our clients. And sometimes that means that you make decisions that maybe don't benefit you and that benefit clients or benefit your team and that you're you're last in that sort of totem pole there, you're at the bottom. But ultimately, you sometimes for the best thing for our clients is to put yourself last. And that's the decision that you have to make, regardless if you're male, female, alpha or not alpha. 
Well, hopefully your kind of feedback and myth busting is going to help change the dynamics of some of the teams you work in. And we will see more of a gender balance going forward. Yeah, some of the teams are. Actually, there are more females than there are males. It's just the one I happen to work on isn't. But I think it's all about diversity of thought. And regardless of gender or background, that you bring something different to a team. And I think one of the ways that you do do that is ensuring that you have diversity in terms of people's backgrounds, people's upbringings, people's genders, people's race. I think everybody brings a different perspective from that reason. And that's one of the reasons why having diverse teams in investment management is a hugely powerful thing to have. But that's also why we hire people from lots of different degree backgrounds, because again, they bring a completely different perspective. It's another way of bringing perspective, just layering on those differences. And if you can layer those really effectively, then I think you can have a really powerful, diverse, different way of thinking about the world and that's going to be really useful in an industry like investment management and I think it's great because so many people from the outside looking in see one model person one model career path and it's great that you come back to this theme of difference and embracing difference and it being a strength so yeah I hope that resonates with the people listening for sure you don't need people skills to work in investments (laughs) myth or fact somewhere in the middle it's probably more towards a myth than it is a fact but it's not like it's not to say that you have to be the person who's like yes I love standing up in front of hundreds of people delivering a presentation I am right in there that is my no that is not me like I like I said slightly terrified about doing this never mind doing something in front of hundreds of people but The thing I think you need to be comfortable with is being able to effectively communicate to others, maybe not loads and loads of people, but your views and why your insights and be able to influence as a consequence. So particularly when you're an analyst in the role, you can't buy things for the portfolio. You need to convince an investment manager or influence an investment manager to buy what you're interested in. And so I think there's people skill required there in terms of being able to work with others, to talk with others, to influence them. But I don't think that you need to be like out there saying, yes, I absolutely want to do every single presentation under the sun. And I feel entirely comfortable and confident in those things. One, they're things that you practice and you learn to get a little bit more confident with. But also, we're really lucky at Bailey Gifford. We have a client department. So the investors, we do interact with clients, but our client department deals with the brunt of the client interactions, client questions, queries, even presenting on the funds. And that makes a huge difference that we can spend an awful lot more time focusing on the investment side. But yeah, so I'd say myth, but it's not to say that if you like to work all day in a room on your own, it's probably not the job for you either. So the next question is, with jobs and finance, you just sit in front of an Excel spreadsheet all day, every day. Myth or fact? Myth. I probably opened an Excel spreadsheet twice last week, possibly didn't open one at all the week before. (laughs) So no, definitely a myth. I think there are parts of the job where you probably would use one when maybe you're looking at like the financials of a business or you're trying to do a valuation or something like that. But I would say that, again, coming back to this idea of outperforming other people and doing things differently If the historic, I guess, viewpoint is that you sit in front of an Excel spreadsheet, then the way you're going to have a different point of view is to not sit in front of an Excel spreadsheet because otherwise you're staring at the same numbers as everybody else. And so we actively encourage people to get out and about to 
go uh, on trips, to go and visit companies, to spend time with people in academia, spend time with experts in their field, spend time with company management teams, just learning and absorbing. So I'd say I'd spend more of my time talking to CEOs and talking to companies than I do sitting with an Excel spreadsheet open. I do spend an awful lot of time reading blogs, news, company annual reports, company documents, all that kind of thing. But it's more the reading side that I spend a lot of time doing rather than the sort of analytical, mathematical, crunching numbers, shall we say. Thank you so much. That brings us on to our final section, which is called Looking Forward. And essentially, we're going to try and give Beth some specific advice to help her get to where you are today. So why should I join the investment management industry? Okay, so in what other career could you be talking to the CEO of social media giant or electric car company one day and then the founder of a potentially transformational treatment for Alzheimer's or cancer the next you know it's a job that's going to get you out of bed in the morning because it's exciting and it's interesting and there's something new and I think it's a really great career for anyone who is genuinely curious about the world who enjoys variety and who's really willing to embrace uncertainty and challenge with creativity and zeal yeah does that answer the question (laughs) am I convincing you (laughs) definitely sounds like something I'd love to do I guess following down that path so you've got her sold on the industry but why would Beth want to work in US equities in particular so I'm obviously totally biased (laughs) (laughs) that's allowed yeah I believe that they're the two most exciting markets in the world globally are China and the US in terms of you think about where all of the innovation in the world really comes or the majority of the innovation has either come from the US or is coming from the US and China. Those are the markets that I think are delivering the most exciting companies and I feel really blessed to spend my time looking at them. I would say though I'm giving you the hard sell about why I really, really like these markets. But I think usually if you apply for a job in investment management, that I wouldn't go in with too much of a set mind as to what area or part of that you would be interested in working in. Because I think one of the things is you just don't know until you try it. And it might be that you think the most exciting market in the world for you is the Japanese market or the European market, or you think that commodities are the most exciting asset class you could possibly invest in. So for me, I work in the area that I think is most exciting, but I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case for everybody else. I wouldn't close your mind off before you even start. I think the big thing is keep in mind that this is a really exciting and interesting industry to work in. And hopefully beyond that, the rest of it kind of works itself out as you're going through it. So you've got us sold on the industry and you've got us sold on US equities. Now, why should Beth join Bailey Gifford instead of, you know, another great firm down the road? And Sophie and I will keep quiet. (laughs) I'd probably say that, I mean, I've only ever worked for Bailey Gifford. And clearly the fact that I'm still here tells you how much I like it. And I, I love my job, but I also love working for Bailey Gifford. I think one of Bailey Gifford's greatest strengths, so we are long term investors And that means we invest over a five to 10 year horizon. And as I said before, in those five to 10 years, there can be a lot of uncertainty. There can be a lot of bumps along the road. You can look wrong for a very long period of time and then not being right, or you can end up not being right at all, or you can end up being right from the beginning or et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of Bailey Gifford's greatest strengths is it's a privately held partnership. And as a consequence of that, we are extremely lucky that 
we have long-term partners in the business. So we don't have to report every quarter about how the company's doing. And we don't feel the pressure to deliver in the short term because we know that the way the company is run is run for the long term. And because we are long-term investors, both of those parts are aligned. And I think that's a really, really powerful firm to be a part of, because I think that there are firms out there that it probably is quite difficult to be long-term in the way you invest when you're feeling the constant pressure to deliver on your numbers and ensure that, am I delivering profitability this quarter? Oh, some of my stocks have gone down. Oh, I must panic about that. I think the way Bailey Gifford is structured affords us the flexibility to be able to not panic when things are not necessarily going our way and be able to take our time to decide, well, is this because something has gone wrong or is this because there's just a feeling from others that this stock is not delivering as what they'd expected? But in the long term, we still believe in that long-term investment case. And I think the structure of the company allows you to do that. It's also, I should say, I have really lovely colleagues and I really <laughs> I really enjoy working there. It's a really, really good business. They very much take care of the people that they work for. I mean, on Friday, just Friday past, we would normally have our annual dinner dance. And obviously this year that's not happened. So instead we had a virtual dinner dance. So if you signed up a your three course meal plus canapes and cocktails was shipped to your door. <laughs> I mean like we had and you had to reheat it in the oven and then there was an evening of sort of like cabaret entertainment that was put on. And you know, so it's little things like that that it's it's a really enjoyable company to be a part of. So now that you've persuaded me to do US equities, what three pieces of advice would you give me to get to where you are today? Oh, that's quite tough. I think the first one is keep your options open. I think it's Cheryl Sandberg. So she's the chief operating officer at Facebook. And she says careers are a jungle gym. They're not a ladder. And that, you know, you should be happy swinging around in various areas and not trying to climb to the top all the time. You should be doing things that help you improve and you will make your way to the top over time, but that it's all about keeping your options open and and realizing that some things might not suit you and that's absolutely fine. I think the second thing, and this is like a bit of a I have, thing I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about, which is I think you have to be willing to fail and to learn from it. So I'm not talking about exams. I don't think it's a good idea to deliberately fail your school exams and then say, well, I've learned stuff from it. So I'm not suggesting that. So please, nobody who's listening believes that that's what I'm suggesting. But I think as a consequence of the way our school system works, I think that because we feel pressure to pass exams, I think we feel pressure in not failing and we don't want to fail and humans don't want to fail. And that's fine. But it's realizing how much you can learn from it. And I hate the idea that somebody wouldn't apply for a job because they're worried about not getting it. And I feel like if you're so fearful of failings at something that you don't even try, you just don't know what opportunities you're losing out of as as a consequence. You know, I try to be a ballerina. I totally failed at that in terms of the fact that I'm I'm an investment manager. I mean, if you're going to say that you failed at something, that you wanted to be a ballerina and you ended up working in finance, I think that's a pretty epic fail. But I don't regret trying because I learned so much through trying. And I think I would have regretted it more by not trying and saying, well, what if, what if, what if, particularly if I'd ended up in a job I hated. I would have been like, well, I would have been so much happier if I'd done this, if I'd done that. Even applying for Bailey Gifford, like I genuinely applied and I, like I say, I didn't really know what the job was. So there was a really quite a high chance that I wasn't going to succeed at that as well. But I reached that point where I think you just have to embrace that chance of failure. And it's quite hard when you've been at school where failure is often something that's like, oh, you don't want to fail. You want to do as well as possible. But it's better to fail sort of 
fast and quite frequently in small things and not fail in the big things. And then I think my final piece of advice is my mantra is be nice and work hard. And it served me pretty well so far. And I think it's really important coming back to that point about alpha females and, you know, do people run around stabbing each other with their stilettos and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, being nice is not hard. You'd hope it's not a hardship for people to just be nice to others and working hard. And I think that I truly believe that the job that and the place that I work is a meritocracy and that if you work hard and you are nice, you will rise up. And maybe you don't rise up as fast as other people, but maybe you don't mind because you've done it with integrity. So those are my three things, not biggies or anything. They're all nice and simple. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, you've been nice enough to come on our podcast and worked hard to persuade Beth to join the industry. (laughs) So all I can say is a massive thank you for both of those. Well, thank you very much for having (laughs) me. And I can say that I tried this. I hopefully haven't failed at it. (laughs) I'll I'll discover when you decide not to publish it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this is the perfect example of like, I think probably coming out of school, I probably would have said no to something like this. Whereas I think I've reached a point in my life and career when I was like oh go on then (laughs) thanks for listening please join us again next episode as we hear some more truths learn some more jargon and bust some more myths don't forget to subscribe to the core breaking through careers podcast via your podcast app of choice and check out the website at www.breakingthroughcareers.org catch you next episode and Just a quick reminder about the investment management glossary that you can find via the Breaking Through Careers website. Also, if you enjoyed this episode and would like to see us back for another season, please drop us a review on iTunes. See you next episode.